We've been singing of the Father's love for us, His work in us. And it fits beautifully with the passage of Scripture that we'll be in today, Ephesians 6, with respect to parenting. But I want to make sure we're tying that back into who God is for us. Last week, we were in Mark 10, verses 13 through 16, where the disciples, for whatever reason, felt that Jesus didn't have time uh, or uh, care for the little ones that people were bringing to him that he might bless them. And Jesus strongly rebuked them. He was indignant by their response, and he actually said, you permit these little ones to come to me, don't hinder them for." The kingdom of heaven is, is like these little ones. And so we spent some time looking last week at Mark 10 and the great love that Jesus has for children. And similar to what we did with the verses in Mark 10 preceding that, that had to do with uh, the, the question the Pharisees put to Jesus, could a, could a husband divorce his wife for any reason? We took a little excursus out of that, a little side trip, and looked at some other scriptures. So today we're taking a little side trip out of Mark 10 into Ephesians 6 uh, to look at some of the positive statements that God has for us concerning parenting, what His will for them is, and consequently what His will for us as parents. And grandparents, you could be included in this too. The commands aren't explicitly for you, but you, you need to recognize the significant position you're in to partner with your adult children as they try to parent those precious grandchildren. You think your only job is to spoil them, Sorry, God actually has a different plan and program for those grandbabies. And, and just because you say, I, you know, I put my time in and, and I'm, I'm glad to be out of the parenting thing, don't underestimate the significance of, of your partnership even with adult parents. So I know some of you aren't parents or even grandparents, but even here at Gospel Hope, we are serious about the discipleship of these little ones and some of the, some of the guiding principles and truths in Ephesians 6 a need to work their way back into those rooms. And I was thinking as those, those little ones were walking out, uh, headed to their time of discipleship, that even some of the truths we're going to look at today uh, have direct bearing on how we do ministry as a church family. So even if you're not a parent, uh, you, you can't tune out today. This is the word of the Lord, and it is timely and meaningful for all of us. Before we look at it together, let's Again, ask the Lord for his help and pray together. Father, thank you for your presence and power. You have promised those things to us and we are in need of it. Oh, how we need you personally. We are not just in need of principles for life, some kind of of teaching that would give us guidance. We need you. And because we have you, we need your word to take control of our thoughts and to guide the course of our lives today and in the days ahead. Many here feel absolutely overwhelmed for various reasons. For some, it's just the details and tasks that are upon them. For others, it would be more of an emotional care or a spiritual concern. But all of these things, Lord, are more than we know how to handle. We are not strong enough to carry the load that rests upon our hearts and minds today. By faith, we cast our cares on you as your word teaches us. And we do so with that great hope and assurance. You have said, cast your cares on me because I care for you. What an amazing thought it is that you, as our Father, 
care for us. As we read in Psalm 103, you never forget that we are framed out of the dust of the ground. Oh, Lord God, thank you for that kindness. We feel like a thousand cookies have been attached to our souls and the pop-up ads and warnings distract us and they dilute our energy and and we just want to focus on the the main thing at hand and so I ask Lord God that you would clear away all of those distractions and just clean our souls of everything that would hinder us from receiving your word. Spirit of God would you breathe your life into our souls that we may live today fully surrendered to your lordship. How thankful we are that you have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Truly, we lack nothing today. We feel like it. We wonder. But your word assures us we have everything that we are in need of. So we give you our praise, as Paul did, and say that, and, and ask that you would do a work here today that would amount to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Ephesians 6, and if you're using one of the Bibles from the chair rack in front of you, you'll find Ephesians 6 on page 979. It's in the New Testament. It's one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to some of the early churches, the church at Ephesus, and uh, he is giving some really helpful instruction here. Parents, you ever feel like this? pulled this off of somebody's Facebook page this week. I was amused and struck, and some of you feel like this. I've reached the point in parenthood where I just yell nonsensical threats in an aggressive tone like I know what I'm doing. Many parents feel like that, don't you? And you sometimes even, do you ever have those out-of-body experiences where you're hearing yourself talk to your kids, whether it be high volume or low volume, and you just kind of have that sense of, what what am I even saying? And who is this that's actually speaking right now? You know, I'm grateful that God doesn't leave us to our own thoughts and devices when it comes to parenting. Like everything else in this life of following Jesus, a life of discipleship and, and following Him, He really does give us truth to build our lives on truth that we can practice in everyday living. And this matter of parenting is one of those things. And so as we look together at Ephesians 6, and it'll be on the screen, but you look at the copy of Scripture in your lap, if you will, please. Follow along as I read these very brief verses. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. I'm going to add verse 4 here as well, even though it's not a part of the preaching text today, but it's part of that same paragraph, isn't it? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Twice in this particular passage, Paul reminds us that the sphere of a child's obedience and the sphere of a father's instruction is the Lord. And just like last week, we began with that very important point out of Mark 10, 13 through 16. Let's not assume we all just get it, but Jesus is the center, not just of the gospel story, Jesus is the center of the universe. 
And if we try to, if, if we try to do anything in the Christian life as if we are the center of the universe, or if our kids are the center of the universe, we're going to be in trouble. So I just want you to remember that truth as we begin to plow through this passage together, and I'm going to work really hard to make this very practical and down to earth uh, for all of us as well. A number of years ago, I had lunch with a man that I respected highly, and I had known him long enough to watch him and his wife rear their three daughters. I watched them when they were little girls, even, and and one of the daughters was actually becoming a member of our church, and so they were entering adulthood, and we had lunch one day, and we were talking about a number of things, and I I asked him, um, what what advice would you give me as as a younger dad? And this, as I said, was about uh, 14 years ago. And I wrote this down because this was so meaningful. And he said, be the, kind, be the kind of Christian your children want to be like. You can't drive your kids to God. You entice them. Saturate their lives with the words and ways of God. I think in some respects that's what Paul is calling us to do. And the things that he is speaking to children, and yes, these are commands that are given to children who are still in the home, at least the obedience part, the honor thing stays with us all of our lives. I don't think we ever get away from that. But at the center of this is God's word and God's ways. Now look at the first verse. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And I want to just describe it this way to you. Obedience is the right action of a heart that's submitted to God. Your child's obedience is not ultimately about submission to you. Not in a Christian household. It's ultimately about submission to God and to His authority. That word obey, if you were to just, then this would be a very pedantic and artificial translation of that word, but it's, it's actually two words brought together that mean to hear under. And that's actually a a very good description of what a child needs to learn to do. First of all, they are placed under the authority of a parent, and God's first command to them is, you need to be a good listener. That's the battle, especially for younger kids, isn't it? Many parents have said, listen to me. Are you listening to me? One of our children, our oldest, he's been here a couple of times, he's 24 now, but when he was really little, and he's still kind of a type A personality, it's like, what's the plan for today? And if we didn't have a plan, he was going to make one up. But there'd be times where I'd actually hold his face in my hands and go, you know, forehead to forehead and say, are you listening to me? Because I knew that even three feet apart, he was going to be distracted by something else that was going around. Learning to listen is the first part of this obedience that God is calling our children to. Now notice the second phrase, in the Lord. And I touched on this just a moment ago, but that obedience ultimately is in the sphere that Jesus is Lord over, and He's Lord of the universe. There's not one part of the universe that exists outside of His Lordship and authority today. And our children need to learn that. We don't give Jesus control of one part of our life or one part of our world. He's Lord of it all. And so ultimately, obedience is not about your child or, or my children learning to submit to us as parents. It's ultimately about their learning to hear the voice of the Lord as He speaks, as He maintains His authority in this world. 
Parents, we have to remember this. I know that there are times where you even forget that it is that it is Jesus Christ who's Lord of the universe. And we sometimes speak in a way that's just like, if I can just get this child to do what I need him to do right now, life will be better for both of us. And it is, but you just have to remind yourself again and again, I'm a parent under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And my child's obedience is ultimately about him. It's not even about me at this moment. And don't we want our children to function not just as healthy adults, we want them to function as spirit-filled, spirit-led adults. And so parenting is, is in part, a, a season of helping them to learn to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We want them to live their lives under the authority of God Almighty. They will never outgrow that sphere of obedience. There will be a point where they leave our homes and they get a job and, and find a place to live and even set up their own family and household. And they're not under our parental authority at that point, but they will always be under the authority of the Lord. So we must speak and act as adults who ourselves are under God's authority. Don't underestimate the significance of, of that uh, dichotomy. And your kids, when they're younger, may not be able to fully understand it, but they know when mom and dad are submitted to authority. They smell it when they're, when they're trying to uh, follow the example of a rebel. And when they get older, they'll begin to see even, even more clearly the discontinuity. You're saying to them, you need to obey me, and they see in you a person who's, who's not willing to submit to the Lord of the universe. We must speak and act as adults who are under God's authority. Then notice what Paul says. This is right. And when he says this is right, he's actually using a word that's used in other places for righteous or righteousness. That means it's right according to the standards that God has given us. He's not just saying this is a piece of friendly advice. This is stuff that I've seen be effective through the years. You know, if children can learn to obey, it's just a good thing for society. All of that may be true, but he's actually pushing it again to a higher standard. It's the righteous thing for a child to learn to do. So parenting at the end of the day is not about getting my children to conform to my standards or the family traditions that make us who we are. Not for a Christian mom or dad. Christian parenting is about finding, helping that child to find that place of submission in the presence of God according to His Word and His standards. All of life is lived in the sphere of God's authority. Obedience is the right action of a heart that is submitted to God. So dad says, honey, it's time to put the toys away. I want you to brush your teeth and get ready for bed. And sweet little Susie, who, who in her room has created a remarkable mini household and neighborhood with her toys and set it all up and and, and as dad's been listening, you know, doing his work, maybe up and down the hall, has noticed that she's been there contentedly and spontaneously writing coherent dialogue between her figurines. Parents, you've heard that happening, right? Role-playing. Arranging the miniature furniture, assigning roles to each of the characters, demonstrating a keen understanding of the social dynamics that are vital to any neighborhood. That little girl who has been the picture of childhood innocence suddenly says with firm resolve and stunning resistance, I don't want to. 
And then she returns to her little world. What's a parent supposed to do? What this Christian dad needs to do at that moment is recognize that sweet little Susie has just revealed not only she's in charge of, uh, of her little playtime, she actually thinks she's in charge of her world. And she's acting out what that fallen nature brings to the table every day. Sweet little Susie is corrupted by the same sin that you and I are corrupted by as parents and grandparents and even non-parents. And at that moment, she may not be able to articulate it, but she's just shown what's really going on in her heart. She wants to be God. And as a parent, you've been positioned by God to be his messenger and communicate clearly through your words and maybe even actions as necessary, she's not God. And she doesn't have the authority to call the shots at that moment. She has to learn to submit ultimately to God's authority. Now, here's the, here's the mistake many parents make. We suddenly turn it into our divinity. And we make it about, I told you, and in your mind, you're thinking, you know what, that, that little thing is not going to alter my schedule because honestly, I want to get her teeth brushed and get her in bed because there's a TV show I want to watch or there's a job I want to get to. There's something about me. And so at that moment, we as parents are tempted to, to become God of our world. And you can discipline a child because they've messed with you as God of your little world. Both would be sinful responses, wouldn't they? So in wisdom, though we, we take that moment to teach and instruct that reality is Susie's not God of her little world and Dad is not God of his world. Both of us live in God Almighty's world. And he's so ordered and arranged things that both of us have to live under his authority. Now, he's got specific words for dads and moms in this, in this situation, and Susie has to learn to submit to that earthly authority, which ultimately is about God's authority. And dad needs to be careful that he exercises God's authority at this moment and doesn't just fly off the handle and get angry and you know, discipline Susie just because she's messed with his world. Obedience is the right action of a heart that's submitted to God. Here's a second thought. Honor is the right attitude of a heart that's submitted to God. Look again at the text with me. Verse 2 says, honor your father and mother. To honor someone is to place value on them. And that would include things like respect and reverence and love. God's intention is that children learn to affix value to their parents, and that's going to spread beyond their parents to their siblings or to friends or to co-workers or to neighbors, and ultimately it, it needs to be something that we just show there's a, there's a human respect and honor that ought to be conferred by us one on another. You know, there are some striking things even in the Old Testament that help us to see how important this is to God. You know that a failure to value parents in the appropriate manner is so important to God that he actually issues a command to Moses, and it's recorded in the book of Exodus, and there are two different verses there that actually are stunning to us. 
But I want you to hear it, not through your cultural eardrums of, of, of the cultural norms around us. I want you to listen to this as the word that comes from God, as He wants to express how important it is to Him that children learn to honor their parents, that they place a value on them that God Himself has established. And so He speaks through Moses, the great prophet, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. This seems exceptionally harsh to us, to us in our culture, doesn't it? And I'm not saying that we ought to legislate this kind of law in our communities and see if we can get our congressional representatives to, to put it in force. Some of you say, might not be a bad idea. Uh, in, in one respect, it might not. What I want you to see, rather than going down those paths of conversation, is that this command of God actually reveals to us the seriousness of such a sin. Capital punishment is what God calls for. And part of discipling our children is that we teach them to live with respect, first toward that authority in the home, and then with respect toward others. Some of you see this every day. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are law enforcement officers. You deal with, uh, with employees who haven't figured this thing out. They're not the center of the universe, but they want to live like it. And they're disobedient, they're disrespectful, they're careless and inconsiderate concerning other people. Part of discipling our children is that we teach them to respect others. You know, when I was growing up, I was never allowed to call my parents or their friends by their first names. My sisters and I did it every once in a while, and I think kids resort to this, like, you can't get your parents' attention. Mom, Dad, Mom, Dad, they don't listen, and then it's like, hey, Ruth. Well, that would get my mom's attention. <laughs> and I was very careful. I, I only did that when I was joking, you know, and it's like, because if I had ever done that seriously, I, I would have been disciplined some way or another. I wasn't even allowed to call their friends by their first names. And some of the friends were okay with that, but my parents weren't. It's like, no, that's Mr. So-and-so. That's Mrs. So-and-so. You know what? Even to this day, and I think I'm old enough where I probably could call my dad's friends by their first name, I'm really hesitant to. But there's also something in me that says, you know what? People who are 30 years older than I am deserve respect. That's just a small way that my parents were teaching me to honor them and others. Now, obedience without honor is Phariseeism. Why, why would we say that? Well, there's an interesting passage in Matthew 15. So if you don't mind turning back uh, toward the beginning of the New Testament, I want you to see uh, the, the whole text here. Jesus is actually confronting the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and actually their lack of honoring, their disobedience to the law of God, if you will, uh, as they were failing to care for their parents. Now, these are adults, all right? So this is part of the reason I would say that the command to honor our parents stays with us all through life. In the middle of this confrontation, though, where, where Jesus is taking a, a supposedly spiritual practice that these Pharisees were engaging in, where 
money that should have been used to help support their parents, they were saying had been dedicated as a spiritual gift to God's work at the temple. And, and you should also recognize they hadn't actually given it. They just kind of earmarked it with the spiritual terminology. Oh, they still had access to it and can use it, but they were like, sorry, can't use it to help provide for mom and dad in their old age because that, that's been a gift to God. And, and it just infuriates Jesus. And so he's confronting them for this great hypocrisy. But notice what he says in verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, this is a key point. This is why obedience and honor must go together. Because God is not simply looking for behavior modification in Christian parenting. And you should not be content to just see your kids do the letter of the law. You gave them a task, they fulfill the test. No, the attitude with which we obey God is equally important, and so it is for our children. And, and why the, the reason I would say obedience without honor is Phariseeism is because they were obeying the letter of the law as Pharisees, but their hearts were far from God. Phariseeism, legalism. And you don't want a child who honors you just with his or her lips, but their heart is far from you. Every parent wants the heart of the child, and God wants the heart of your child. So the right action without the right attitude is not the kind of heart, not the kind of obedience that, that God desires to see in his people. So Johnny is glued to the TV screen, and the game controller is firmly fixed in his hand. And the real world doesn't even exist to him because he has been transported into this virtual world that he is rescuing or saving or defending. And from the kitchen, mom says, Johnny, supper is about ready. Please pause the game and come help set up the table. And Johnny arrives in the kitchen shortly thereafter, and he begins to do what he's been asked, but the muttering under his breath and the slamming of the silverware drawer and the sloppy distribution of plates and napkins on the table send a clear message to mom that he is not happy to have been asked to pause his game. His attitude does not honor his mother or the Lord. And as a matter of fact, his attitude is rebellion. And mom, sometimes you don't know what to say at that point, do you? And sometimes you even feel a conflict. Well, he is doing what I asked him to do. Yeah, but his attitude is just in defiance of you and rebellion toward God. Do I say something to him? Do I discipline my kids for bad attitudes? Biblically speaking, you better. You don't want an adult child who's grown up, and he may, he may do everything that the Bible calls him to do, but he's got a terrible attitude about it. That doesn't honor God, and that doesn't bring blessing to anybody. And don't let your kids, young or old, get away with, What? I didn't say anything. Oh, your body is screaming through nonverbal messages that you hate me, you hate what I've asked you to do, you're just way out of sorts. So don't let your kid get off, you know, by trying to play that card on the table. I didn't say anything. I'm doing what you asked me to do. Yeah, but your attitude is sinful. God's expectation is that we would honor our parents throughout our lives, whether young or old. 
And again, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't chide those Pharisees in Matthew 15 for failing to obey their parents as adults, but rather for failing to honor them by providing out of their resources for them in adulthood. Those Pharisees actually were living with a bad attitude. Now look again at the text. Go back to Ephesians 6 with me. There's a promise. And the promise is twofold. Paul says in verse 3, first of all, that it may go well with you. That's the promise of quality of life. God really does desire to bless us. He's not promising us a fabulously wealthy or comfortable life, but he is promising us a life that, that he describes with the word well. And all of us want life to go well, don't we? It doesn't mean that you'll never suffer because that, that's another part of gospel teaching. There is suffering in the Christian life. But obedience to God's word sets us on the path to well-being. Obedience to law is the foundation for peace in any society. And obedience and honor, the, these types of things are the foundational pieces for peace in the home. You know, Paul describes the last days of Timothy by saying, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. And then he inserts this one, disobedient to their parents. And the list goes on from there, and every one of those things is true of, of our society today. But that's not what God intended. He actually desires that it would go well for you, for your kids. And then the promise of quantity of life, so that you may live long in the land. And that's taken directly from Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Obedience as a general rule, prolongs life. Obedience implies restraint. It implies sobriety. It, it even implies industry, contributing to the good of society. These are the things that secure a lengthened existence. God has designed life to work in a particular way, and He has intended it to go toward those things that He would describe as good. Believing and obeying God means a better quality and greater quantity of life. Rejecting and disobeying God means a difficult life. Proverbs is loaded, loaded with instruction for children and parents. In Proverbs 1, we read, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. That kind of instruction that, that godly parents are giving their children is is an adornment to your life. I'm always a little amazed when I read through the Gospel of Luke and come to the end of chapter 2 after the account of Christ's birth, but you come to verses 51 and 52 and see that of the Christ child, he went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He is the perfect child. They're like every other set of parents on planet Earth. They're not perfect. They're going to do the best they can. They were, they were people of faith, and clearly Joseph is a man of integrity, and Mary is a woman of godly fear of the Lord, lives characterized. But they're not perfect parents, but Jesus still arranges himself under them because that's the place God the Father had called him into. It's a reminder to us as parents and even grandparents, God didn't position you there because you're perfect. 
And he's not actually asking you to be the perfect parent. He is asking you to be a person who's, first of all, submitted to him. And as you're submitted to him and seeking to practice his word, his truth, that that would transfer and bring blessing and position your children to enjoy both a quantity of life and quality of life that he characterizes as good. Now, very practically speaking, in these last few minutes we have, I just want to walk through some things related to discipline. Because one of the questions that frequently comes up is, how, when do we discipline our kids? How do we discipline them? And I'm not going to be able to answer all of it, but I'm going to try to give you some guiding truths and principles uh, from the scriptures again, even beyond what Ephesians 6 is giving us here, but that I hope will be a help and an encouragement. And we can talk after the service or later on, get together somewhere down the road. The purpose of discipline, though, is not to just help the kid learn, you, you stepped out of line and you know, now you're going to get whacked. Uh, penalty to pay. That we'll get to some of that, biblically speaking. But I think the first truth to keep in mind is that discipline is restorative. God is actually trying to, to conduct a rescue operation. Some of you were part of our little parenting conference we had almost a year ago. It's hard to believe. And we use some of the, the, the video material that Paul Tripp has put together, and it's a fabulous resource. We have a copy here that we could even arrange to check out to you if you will return it, or if you want to buy your own copy, it'd be worth adding to your library. But he speaks very specifically about these very things. Discipline is not about getting your way, getting your child to comply with your wishes. Ultimately, there is a spiritual rescue and restoration operation that's underway. Because even going back to that first illustration, we're all born thinking we're the center of the universe and God is intent on demonstrating to us, teaching us, and helping us to come to the place where we recognize He is Lord and we are in a submissive, serving relationship to Him. So that means discipline can't be an expression of your irritation or your anger or your impatience, even though you may be flooded with those emotions at that moment. Children need firm, loving authority and active discipline. It's why Proverbs goes on to say, and I'm going to give you three references very quickly, but Proverbs 13 verse 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The child needs to be rescued from self delivered from sin. Proverbs 19, verse 18, discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Sometimes you feel like killing him, don't you? Proverbs 22, verse 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. See, that sin nature that each of us is born with results in not just foolish behavior, but there is foolish character that comes with it. And unless there is the right kind of discipline applied to the soul at the heart level, that folly is going to remain bound up in the heart of the child. And you know, the bigger they get, the harder the consequences for their foolishness. So rescue and restoration are two key purposes. Here, here's one other, formation of Christ-likeness. Turn to Hebrews 12 with me, please. That's also a New Testament book. And it is toward the back, if you are still in Ephesians. And again, if you're using one of our church Bibles, page 1009. Now listen to this passage. The writer of Hebrews says, For they, that is your earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, 
But he, that has reference to God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. There's the key thought. See, that's the purpose of holiness, or that's the purpose of discipline. Actually trying to move us from where we are as either rebels or just fools. We're trying to live life according to our own way, and God is trying to discipline us in a way that we will actually be sharers of his holiness. That's his character. That's the way he lives. Now look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. And there's even a little clue for us as parents. Momentary pain is a good thing. That, that's actually going to set the table, and I'll, I'll tell a few more personal stories uh, of how we actually conducted discipline, including spankings. Momentary pain. But look, look where it's headed. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. You see, do you see the terminology there? This is not about you you know, just venting your anger. This is not about you giving that child what they deserved long ago, and I've just had it. No, this is actually a very intentional and strategic training process. Parents, let me encourage you, don't avoid discipline because you're, you know, afraid how my kid is going to respond to it, or even the fact that, you know, you may have grown up in a home where discipline wasn't biblical at all. As a matter of fact, it may have even just fallen in the category of abuse. And your parents, you know, got angry and they smacked you around. That's not at all what God is talking about. He's talking about an intentional, strategic, spirit-controlled, Bible-guided training process. God brings a temporary pain into our lives in order that we would experience the long-term peaceful fruit of righteousness. He'd rather sting you a little bit right now and help you to avoid the eternal torment that awaits every rebel who will not repent and submit to him than he would to just kind of let you continue and get your own way. Momentary pain yielding the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, a couple of questions that come up. When do I discipline? And the simple answer is when there's been a direct, clear rebellion to authority. Say, so, man, that happens all the time. I know. It'll taper off. If you, if, you, if you fight the battles when they're younger, you won't be fighting bigger battles when they're bigger. You say, well, how do we, how do, we do that? Well, let me give you some don'ts. First of all, physical abuse of any kind is not only a grievous sin, it's a legal crime. You never, never have God's authorization or the authorization of the state or our nation to, to knock your kid around. And woe on you if you do. Remember Mark 10, 13 through 16, Jesus says, don't hinder the little ones from coming to me. And then he took them up in his arms. You may have legal issues here, and if you survive those you will stand before God one day and you will not want to face his wrath because you have abused one of his little ones. So physical abuse is a grievous sin. You must not hit, you must not slap, you must not shake, punch, push, anything related to that. That is not Christian discipline, that's abuse. Some do's. Here we go. First of all, make sure your heart is under the Lord's control. Remember, we're all operating in the sphere of the Lord. 
You're under his authority. Uh, and, and there are those moments where you're just like beside yourself. Like we, I, I, I have said to this child, and I've, I've disciplined this child repeatedly, and here we are again, and you just feel anger welling up with you. That's one of the reasons we, uh, I'll just go ahead and put some of this out here and tell you a little more how we did it. But we, we actually used a five-gallon paint stirrer. You know, you can get those at Home Depot. This one had actually been used to stir paint, so it had a little extra coating on it. But, you know, we kept that thing in the top of our bedroom closet, which was in the back of the house. My daughter Haley is here today. She's not always here with us, but what a great day for you to come, Haley. <laughs> the Lord provided a visual aid. And Haley could tell you about this process. And, and so part of the reason we kept it in the top of the closet is because you had to typically walk from where the disciplinary offense had happened and, and even that little walk was a time to gather yourself and make sure that I'm not just like hauling off and, you know, smacking one of my kids because I'm really ticked. And um, make sure your heart is under the Lord's control. Number two, we, I would highly recommend that you take the child to a private place. The biggest reason is that God doesn't discipline us in front of other people unless we've We've crossed several lines. In his grace, he typically confronts us privately. And even if you look at Matthew 18, how the, the formal discipline process between brothers and sisters in Christ unfolds in the church, there's, there's private rebuke, there's semi-private rebuke, and if there's still not repentance and, and humility at that point, then we might bring it out into the public. But, but God himself disciplines privately because he's not looking to embarrass anyone. And you know, sometimes as a parent, when your kid acts up in public, you feel embarrassed, and because you want to make sure everybody around you knows that you're not one of those parents, you know, you're tempted to, like, protect your reputation by doing something in that moment that actually is not part of God's training and discipline. We would sometimes have conversations with our kids when they were little, um, you know, if there was, like, a big eruption in the grocery store, and uh, we had plenty of them. Let me go ahead and say, pastor's kids are kids. You know, we don't get a special dispensation of God's grace where our kids, you know, are any better than anybody else's kids. So we sometimes recognize we're not in a position right now to, to go through this whole disciplinary process that, that we had put in place. So we'd remind them all the way home. You know, when you get home, you, you know, daddy's, daddy's going to give you a spanking. I know. That was agony, wasn't it? Sometimes <laughs> they're like, just get it over with already. Um, so there, there are ways to even handle that. Number three, Use biblical terms. Talk to your child about the sin he or she is being disciplined for. It needs to be clear to them that you as a parent are operating under God's authority. And when he defines anger as sin, then we need to refer to it as sinful anger. And we don't soften it and say, you know, honey, I know you didn't really mean to do that. Occasionally there are those things where it's truly an accident. But you know when your kid is sinning, and they know it too. So don't minimize their sin by, by trying to be a softy with the, this thing, but use biblical terms. And, and as you describe this to them, you are teaching them um, to use words that God himself uses, anger, pride, selfishness, dishonor, disobedience. And then out of those biblical terms, you're in a position to lead them to a confession of sin. Because remember, confession is saying the same thing about our actions or attitudes that God himself says. And if he calls it pride, or if he calls it anger, or if he calls it disobedience, then we should too. 
And that's what positions us then to have a conversation that would go something like this. Honey, did you disobey daddy? Yes. And what does the Bible call disobedience to daddy? Sin. What happens when we sin? There has to be a payment for sin, or they may say we get spanked. There are a variety of ways they can express it, but you are also trying to connect the, the biblical truths to, to their little world at that moment that when we sin, it always brings pain. And the ultimate pain, if you don't repent of your sin, is death and hell forever. Because see, where I'm really trying to go in this conversation as a parent is to Jesus and the gospel. Remember, we're not about behavior modification. It's not about establishing dad's authority or protecting dad's little universe as if dad is God over the kid. No, dad is submitted to, to Jesus and we're living our lives under his authority. And so when they affirm this kind of truth, you are able to say, that's right, sin always hurts us, doesn't it? And sin always offends God. You say, how, how young? Man, I don't, I don't know that any of our kids could tell you how early on we started talking like this, but we were doing it probably earlier than they could totally understand it, in part because there's, there's a gospel rescue mission that we want to launch just as soon as possible. And so as part of the disciplinary process, that's where you actually share the good news with your child. And so you say things like this, first of all, you know, Jesus died for this sin. It's because of your disobedience and daddy's disobedience that Jesus had to die on the cross. And sometimes that'll actually deepen a child's pain in their heart at that moment. They haven't been thinking about that. Just like you and I as adults don't think about the fact that when we go out and commit sin, that's the very thing that put Jesus on the cross. You say, did you know that Jesus died on the cross because you and I sinned? But do you also know that God forgives all of our sin because Jesus died? And so you say things like this, his death is so special and the blood that Jesus shed is so powerful that God actually says to us, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Isn't that wonderful? Something along those lines. Because again, you're trying to help your child understand that their, their sin at that moment is a bigger deal than just the household disruption it's created. There's a God in heaven who created them that has been offended by this sin. And then you say, so let's go to God the Father in the name of Jesus, his son, and let's confess this sin. And some of your kids at that point will say, does that mean I'm not getting a spanking? If God forgives me, why can't you? Uh, say, well, there are consequences to our sin. But as you share the good news, you look for the opportunity then to pray with them. Sometimes your child doesn't want to pray. And you should never force them. Now, we were pretty intent on getting a confession uh, where they would acknowledge what they had done was wrong. And I'll get, come to another point in just a moment. But there were some remarkably sweet times. And I, again, I want to tie this back to Mark 10, 13 to 16. You had parents bringing their children to Jesus in order that he might touch them and bless them. And this can be one of those moments, parents even out of that really terrible, stressful moment of their disobedience where you now are, are standing by faith at the very throne of grace and you're about to appeal to God saying, 
we've both offended you. Please be merciful to us. God, will you forgive me? And it's an awesome thing when a child is understanding the gospel and whether through broken words that they can hardly get out because they're so tearful at that moment or just a sweet moment of humility understanding, they say, dear Jesus, I've sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? And you know when your kid is sincere. And so you pray with them and together you seek God's forgiveness. Taking the, the children to Jesus is the thing that needs to happen. And then I would encourage you, affirm your love for your child. Now, you say, so where, does a, where did your spanking occur in there? Some, somewhere in that vicinity. Sometimes we'd, already, sometimes we'd already done that. And we just had a little rule, too, that even though I told you we used a, a five-gallon paint-stirring stick, um, it was typically three whacks on the back of the leg, right? And it stung, didn't it, Haley? But we, we never hit you hard enough where you had bruises because that would be sin. Again, I'm not trying to abuse my child. I'm actually trying to practice what Hebrews 12 says, a moment of pain that's going to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness forever. So yeah, I, I did want it to sting. And, and we also, I mean, we, we taught them, don't fight me. That added swats, didn't it? Sometimes multiplication was another lesson you could teach out of that. Like, don't, don't fight me. And they, I know it was killing them. And I think you in particular were, were a real squirmer. She was probably the most tender-hearted of our four, our four children. We just, we weren't fighting anymore. It's like, you know how this goes. And it would kill them, but they, they could learn to do it you know, bend over the side of the bed or over the knee or whatever, and then just three swats to sting, not to hurt or damage, certainly. But then after the prayer, affirmation of love, physical affection, you know, hug them, assure them, I love you, God loves you, Jesus loves you. Um, and after that affirmation, then it's, it was often necessary to go seek the forgiveness of, you know, like the sibling or maybe the other parent or whoever had been offended by that particular sin. So we'd have that conversation uh, of just trying to restore them. Remember, because this is a rescue and, and restorative operation that's underway. We want to restore all the relationships that have been damaged by their sin. And then finally, we go on with life because God is gracious. And when he forgives your sin, he doesn't put you on probation. He doesn't put you in time out and say, you need to go think about what you've done for a while. Some of us grew up in homes like that where, man, if you, if you crossed it with mom and dad, they, they might ignore you for three days. They might continue to yell or preach sermons at you for another six hours. And you were never really sure when the disciplinary process was done, were you? You know, when God is finished, he restores us fully. Yes, there are consequences sometimes. And that may be part of the, the discipline. You may say, you know what? I love you. Thank you for asking my forgiveness. I'm sorry the bad attitude erupted while you were sitting at the table. And because of that, you know, no PlayStation tomorrow. So there can be consequences beyond, you know, this specific process of discipline. But you still return to life. And you don't treat them as if they're a second-class family member now. And I can't tell you the number of times this happened at supper. 
you know, it's disruptive. It's like, this is good food. I want to eat it when it's hot. This is so inconvenient. Now we got to march back there and I got to get the stick out of the top of the closet and sit on the bed and this is going to take 15 minutes. And if you would stop crying so we could actually talk like human beings, we'd be done with this in three minutes, but now it's going to take 30. <laughs> this kind of discipline is never quick. It's, it's rarely convenient. But it's about peaceable fruit to last a lifetime and into eternity. It's worth the effort. I'm not here to say we did it perfectly. My kids would tell you there were times where everything I just said was like out the window and it was just an eruption. And my girls, I'll tell another story, there was, there was one classic moment where they were out and it started that little, you know, just kind of nagging at each other and all of that. And I was in our little storage room doing some stuff and I just like came through the door and I'm like, just exploded. Stop it! You know, because they're just like back and forth, back and forth, and tears erupted, and I was in sin, and all that. And for several years, th these girls would remind me, and they were little. Dad, remember that time you got really angry with us? Like, yes, I'm sorry. I asked you to forgive me. You know, when God forgives us, he doesn't bring it up again, so you little ones should stop. But I am here to tell you that, it, that if you will first of all, submit to God's authority as a parent or grandparent. And you will commit yourself to this kind of training process. It will yield fruit that will amaze you and bless you. God really does want to bring good into our lives. And we need to trust him for it. I do think, I want to say this, I, even though we, we chose to use SWATs, I think there are all kinds of creative ways you can discipline a child. Uh, one of the greatest examples, my oldest sister and brother-in-law had a child who was just, you know, trying to be God of her own little world. And on one particular occasion, she had been really mean to her younger brother. And, and something that, it had something to do with, I think, taking some of his Halloween candy or, or whatever. All I remember is that they decided that that moment, their little girl was going to forfeit all of her candy. And it, I mean, she'd have probably rather had a, a spanking. They, they found that point of appropriate pain. And it was because there's a really important lesson that has to be learned. So I, I don't want to act like, you know, five-gallon pain sticks are the only appropriate biblical form of discipline. I, I think there are probably a hundred different routes you could go, and even tools at your disposal. But it's with a view of bringing our children to Jesus. I want to finish with this and just remind you that Jesus loves your children more than you do. And where we began this a week ago was this really remarkable moment where parents, and maybe even some older siblings, we can't be totally sure, but people were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And there were some well-intentioned disciples, but they were way out of line, and they stood in his way, and Jesus indignantly rebukes them, and then he not only receives these little children, he actually gathers them up in his arms. And the thing that their parents longed for him to do, he did it. Those children were blessed. You as parents, I as a parent, often feel so inadequately prepared or equipped and sometimes it's fatigue and sometimes it's a lack of wisdom all kinds of things that can contribute to our inadequacy as parents but Jesus is not inadequate 
He laid down his life to rescue all of us. And if you're willing to submit to his lordship and then partner with him in this great rescue and restoration operation, you will be astounded at what God himself will do. So take heart. It's more than a phase they're going through. In one sense, it's heaven and hell that's at stake. But look who is leading the way. Jesus. Let's pray to him. Father, I know that there are parents here who are very discouraged. Some because they're in the midst of hard and difficult battles. Some because they look back and they have regret. and Wish they had an opportunity to do some things over again. But as we look to you, we see in you, first of all, a great God and Father who loves us deeply, perfectly, unfailingly, unconditionally, whose history, whose story as it's unfolded for us in the Old and the New Testament includes rescue after rescue, restoration after restoration. So encourage their hearts and console them. You love their children more than they do. Now I ask that you would pour out your power that we as a church family might partner together in encouraging and aiding, making disciples of both the young, the teens, the older children, and some here have multiple generations behind them, children and grandchildren. Lord, every one of us needs rescue. And I pray that you would cause us to trust you even as we partner with you in making disciples. How thankful we are for your promises, for your guidance. And we take these into our hearts now and say, plant them deep. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.